AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets in the car, while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Movie Crush Friday, very special edition, because I am sitting here uh, staring at the very friendly, handsome face of Mr. Alan Ball. (laughs) Hi there, Alan Ball. Hi. How's it going? It's going great. It's so nice to meet you. And I know that uh, here on the 20th anniversary of Six Feet Under, you've been making the round some, and I really uh, appreciate you taking some time for us. This is a very, very big deal. It is my pleasure. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, so I guess I would love to kind of just go back to the beginning and talk a little bit about the origins of the show and the state of your career at the time where you were kind of the state of television at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. cause I feel like six feet under along with, um, a very small handful of shows kind of helped usher in what we now look at as the golden age of television or another golden age of television. And just a little bit about the beginnings of the, of the seed of the show. Well, uh, I had signed a three-year television development deal with the Greenblatt Janelari studio. Um, Either a week before or a week after I sold the script um, of American Beauty to DreamWorks. Uh, That little script. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. And and so as part of uh, – American Beauty was – came out – at the same time, within a, w- w- again, within 
the the same week that uh, my first uh, show under that development deal, uh, a sitcom for ABC called Oh Grow Up premiered. Right. Um, and after American Beauty came out, a lot of people wanted to meet with me. I bet. And uh, Carolyn Strauss from HBO wanted a meeting, and I said, yeah, hell yeah, I'll take that meeting. Because mm -hmm. I had just discovered The Sopranos, and it was like everybody else in America. I was like, oh, wow, TV can be something completely different than right. we all thought it could be. Mm -hmm. So I met with Carolyn. Uh, uh, we had lunch, and she pitched this idea to me. She said, I've always wanted to do a show about a family-run funeral home. Oh, and something, yeah, and something in my head just went click because I had spent some time in funeral homes when I was growing up because there was a period where people in my family, uh, a lot of people in my family died. Uh -huh. So I had a, a real sense of that weird sort of surreal muffled environment that funeral homes are. Right. And, um, and I thought that would be such a great show. Um, and I said, I really wish I could work on that, but I've got this TV show on ABC, and um, and so I'm not available. Uh -huh. Well, um, not too long after that, um, ABC very graciously canceled my show. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Funny how life I works. Had, yeah, and I had two more years left on my development deal, and everybody was coming at me saying, we've got this, you know, we've got this stand-up com." comic that you're the perfect person to build a show around mm -hmm. or we've got this horrible idea about a man who dies and is reincarnated as his wife's dog that you're a perfect you're the perfect guy to build this show around <laughs> and i just was like i can't do it i can't i gotta get out because i had spent four years prior to oh grow up working uh in traditional four camera sitcom uh -huh. um Plus the 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 half a season that um, Oh Grow Up lasted, and I just really I felt like I've done my time in that particular gulag. I cannot, right. I got to get out of there. So I wrote the pilot to Six Feet Under on spec. Okay, just knowing that HBO was interested in a show like that, and uh, I, I did it when I went home for uh, the Christmas break. Uh, and I came back and gave it to my agent, and she gave it to uh, Bob and David. And there was a moment where they said, "Can't could this be a network show? And I was like, no, no, it cannot be a network show. It has yeah. to go to HBO. And, Absolutely. And we gave it to HBO, and they responded to it. And um, and uh, the rest is history. It's history. <laughs> it's yeah. History. Um, <laughs> When you're writing a pilot like this and you're sort of handed an idea that you uh, that you respond to and you latch on to, what uh, do you literally just sit down and say, okay, who is in, who's in this family? Um, and is that more like where can I create the maybe potentially the best drama or is it who who do, who do I want to be in this family just emotionally? Um. I think it's who do I want to be in this family just emotionally. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not my, – my process is, uh, is not particularly conscious. Um, I, uh, I, I, I sit down to write, and, and sometimes I just get surprised by what happens. Right. Uh, a lot of times it's terrible. I mean, I have, you know, stacks of scripts that I've started and not finished or stacks of scripts that I've finished um, that just don't work. Right, uh, but there was something about this particular environment and these particular characters that just sort of—it's like they came out of me fully formed. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm not 
saying that's any sort of mystical thing. I think it's just I do a lot of work on a subconscious level, and then right. it, it just sort of spills out. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I, it, it just felt right, and also I was at the time I was grieving for my failed ABC sitcom. Uh huh. So I, you know, I, I, I poured a little bit of that grief into um, the pilot, but I. I what I love, I'm not a big fan of development because I've never had an experience in development where things actually got better. Right. Um, I just, and and so the fact that I was able to do this all outside of a development process, um, I think allowed it to 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 be very specific because a, a lot of a lot of times what happens with um development is things get generic things uh-huh. things are sort of pushed into a direction that feels familiar because right. that's you know i think i feel like a lot of times in development people want to make things similar to things that have already been successful of course yeah um and i i, I i'm glad that i was able to sort of figure out the the world and the characters without um it being What's the, what's the right word? Um, ruined. <laughs> I wouldn't say ruined, but but blanded out. Right, sure. Like to appeal to the broadest spectrum or what have right. you. Right, but I'm not saying that would have happened at HBO because they were very much about at, at that time. They were very much about wanting things that were very different, and you know that that's back when their tagline was "It's not TV, it's HBO." Right. So they were they gave you a lot of room then to just sort of do your thing. Well, when I gave them the script for the pilot, they they asked for a meeting, and I came into the meeting, and they said, basically, they said, we really like this. Our only note is the whole thing feels kind of safe. We're wondering if you could just fuck it up a little bit more. (laughs) Yeah. And literally, those were the words that they used, and I I remember thinking, oh, my God, this will never happen to me again. But this is like a a writer's dream, you know. Um, And so I... I did. Uh, I didn't, you know, go in there and just gratuitously fuck things up, but I've tried to figure out ways in which, um, you know, you could tell the story that were messy, yeah. messier and not as as um, cookie cutter. One of the things I, I learned in my five years in sitcoms before I broke broke away and did Six Feet Under, and actually one of the reasons I wrote American Beauty, which was written – uh, fueled by a lot of anger, mm-hmm. um, was the the world that I lived in in as a writer in in sitcom world was a world in which basically the two notes we got from the network, all the notes we got from the network could be consolidated into two thoughts, which mm-hmm. were make everybody nicer, okay, and articulate the subtext. Um, wow, both of which are just you know the the diametrically opposed to good writing right um so i had to unlearn a lot of that uh, sure. when i started uh working on six feet under and at the at, at the same time six feet under for me was in a lot of ways it was film school because you know i had only worked in theater or in um four camera sitcom which is kind of like filmed theater right and um, so single camera storytelling was new to me and uh, and I wanted to direct and I, um, I I wanted to produce. And so it was it was film school and it was probably the best film school I could have gone to. 
Well, and you uh, you directed the pilot, right? I did. Was that a hard fight, or did you just kind of say, I, I would really like to do this? I said I would really like to do this, and they said, okay. Um, wow. And I think I had, I, I, I had just won the Oscar for American Beauty. Yeah, that helps. And I huh? noticed <laughs> that all of a sudden everybody acknowledged what I had to say as if it were right, you know, as if yeah. it were true. Whereas before, whenever I had thoughts, people would go like, yeah, but, and uh-huh. they would start. But, you know, the kind of validation that comes from, you know, winning an Oscar and also having the movie that you want it for be a commercial success is it, people change and they start acting like you know what you're doing. Um, right. And I'm not saying that I did, but I'm, I'm just saying that all of a sudden they, they – I think had that not happened, they might not have been quite so quick sure. to say, yes, we'll let you direct – and I also heard that <clears throat> through the grapevine that people were like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? What if, it's, what if it's terrible? But if I'm not mistaken, I think David Chase directed the pilot of um, Sopranos. Right. And so there was I was, something there. I was sort of using that as a, as mm-hmm. a model. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, on the writing, I'm kind of curious because I've written stuff, and I know a lot of our listeners have dabbled in screenwriting. Is there a point where – the characters, it becomes a little less like, what do I want David to do here? What should David do here? And less, we, we don't really have a choice. David is a fully formed human now. David's going to do this, and we just need to facilitate that. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. Um, yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think a lot of times it, well, characters will let you know what they want Right to do, and a lot of times, in editing especially, um, I find that the the show or the movie or whatever, in editing, it's going to let you know what it wants to be, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, you know, this scene that you thought was so important and so right. great, you're like, uh, it works better without it, and yeah. it, the movie's letting me know that this is what it needs to be, and I think that's true for characters when you have characters that are very specific. And and very specifically complicated psychologically and emotionally, you can't just pitch and go like, "Oh, David's going to run for city council," right? You know, he would never do that. No, David would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I agree with you. Sometimes you just sort. I feel like sometimes my job, especially uh-huh. once once you get a show, once you get the pilot done and the show is up and running, is to just figure out what it wants to be and get out of its way. Right. And how soon does that happen? Well, in this case, how how soon did these characters kind of take on their own uh, path? It's interesting. In in both uh, Six Feet Under and True Blood, it happened on the fifth episode. Wow. Um, the fifth episode of Six Feet Under was when Nate met Billy. Yeah. And I believe it was also the uh, um, the porn star died, uh, got electrocuted oh, yeah. in her bathtub, oh, and there was the yeah. porn star funeral. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that, that was the episode where the show sort of went, this is what I am. And, um, and I said, okay, well, we will honor that. That's really cool. Uh, so this show for me personally marked a really big sort of turning point because it, uh, when it premiered and during its first run was when, when I first met who, uh, is now my wife in Los Angeles. Uh, we lived over in Eagle Rock and then through the show, moved back to Atlanta to my original hometown together. 
And that's where the, when the show kind of ended and we ended up uh, buying a house kind of kitty corner from this family run funeral home with a big, giant, beautiful home. And I remember oh, wow. we, at the time we literally said like, this is meant to be, we're living across from the Fishers. Like this, <laughs> this has got to happen. So uh, it's been real. My wife has seen it now three times all the way through. It's her favorite show of all time. And we just finished my second run, her third. And it's really interesting to watch it at age 30 and then at age 50. Uh, mm. Really almost social experiment interesting to see which characters I identified more with and how much more into Ruth I was this time around mm -hmm. and how much I kind of laughed at Claire's stuff a little bit like, oh, that sweet kid and how mm -hmm. Billy, more compassion for Billy, like all of these like different endorphins are firing 20 years on in my life. And so I think this is one of the shows that did that for a lot of people uh, because everyone identified so much with these characters. And I'm trying to find a question in here. <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious maybe what you think 20 years on uh, when you reflect on these people. Um, I, I hate to say this, but I don't really reflect on them that much. Yeah. Um, because I feel like, okay, that's done. That ended. Sure. And I haven't watched the show since it um, – since it ended, uh, maybe I should, but that sort of feels like something I'll do when I'm in the old age home. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> more, more time on your I'm hands. Just, I'm just trying to figure out the industry and where it is right now and how to get something on the air because it's right. super baffling. It's so different. Like I don't, I don't know that, that Six Feet Under would get made now uh, without some recognizable star attached. Right. Um, I again, I, I don't know that American Beauty would get made now. It seems like everything, the decisions of, on what gets made, is all based on algorithms, and I, I, Interesting. I have a, I have a hard time understanding how that works. Right. One of the great things about those, those Six Feet Under, in my experience uh, with HBO in general, and with both Six Feet Under and um, True Blood, was that there, there wasn't a you know, layer after layer after layer of people who had to give their input and mm -hmm. had to approve things. There was just one person, one or two people, and wow. they would basically say, "Here's what we think." And <clears throat> most of the times, most of the time, the notes were super helpful, and there weren't uh -huh. that many of them. Um, you know, but uh, in my experience since then, has been very, very different. Yeah, uh, and. And quite confusing, and maybe I'm just too old to exist in this new environment. But I know how you feel. It's, it's really strange. <laughs> yeah, um, I'd love to talk about casting a little bit. I mean, it's um, it, it's one of those shows where you certainly can't picture. I mean, it feels like this family was a fully formed family, and these siblings were siblings. And I've heard Peter Krause talk about this before that that when you when they even looked at the show they felt like these are the three kids that Ruth and Nathaniel would have had. Uh, yeah. And I'm, I'm just curious about the casting process, like how easy or difficult that was in, in cert with certain characters. Um, it was, I mean, it, I would say it was, it wasn't terribly difficult, although we, we had a real hard time finding Brenda and Nate. Okay. Um, it took a long time, uh, to, to cast those two roles. And basically, I remember 
really the only person that I went, okay, that's, um, that I don't need to see anybody else was Franny, uh, Francis Conroy. Oh, really? Because when she came in, she, I mean, it was just like, okay, that's her. Let's, yeah, we, <laughs> we can stop looking. <laughs> A lot of women came in and they had, um, had had weird plastic surgery and they looked, you know, surprised. They had that surprised look on their face. Right. And I was like, no, Ruth would not have an eye job. She just no, wouldn't. of course not. Um, Matthew St. Patrick, there were two African-American men in mm-hmm. America who would read for that role. Really? At the time, at the time, there was still a stigma about playing a gay character if, uh-huh. if, if the actor was not gay in real life. And... Um, I think there was a, especially a stigma about playing a gay character in a relationship with a white man. Right. So literally, there were only two guys who read for Keith. Really? Um, really. Um, we had a lot of people uh, come in and read for... I mean, I, th- I remember back then what we did is, is we would take the top three contenders to HBO, and then mm-hmm. we, would, we would go into the HBO... Um, uh, uh, auditorium and and they would and 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 the top brass at HBO would be there and the actors would read and I remember um, Lauren read for Claire and um, and afterwards uh, there was some concern that she did that it, it was the scene where she's on crystal meth and she yeah. finds out that her father's dead uh-huh. and there was some concern that that she didn't uh, the, it didn't feel authentic, and I, I remember thinking this girl's the girl. So I had to go out and talk to her in the hallway, and I was like, "You have to be just play the crystal meth thing a little bit more." And she's like, "I don't know how to do that. I've right. never done crystal meth, and <laughs> I never tough. will. So uh-huh. what is it? What?" Do, I said, and I had never done crystal meth right. either. So I was like, <laughs> "Well, it's just like be really jittery, and and you know, yeah. just <laughs> I didn't even sure. know if that was the real thing, but I think that's what you know they were looking for." Um, Peter Krause originally uh, was one of the, the finalists for David. Oh, wow. Um, um, but uh, – and then there was a guy we brought in to play Nate, and we thought we had found the perfect Nate, but he just choked. He choked at, at the callback. And um, so then we got uh, – Rachel Griffiths had read the script, and she flew herself to America mm-hmm. to read for Brenda. And so – I had worked with Peter on Sybil, the the sitcom Sybil, uh-huh. and I said, "Will you come and read with her for this?" And it, it eventually, that became his callback for Nate. And once the two of them were together, it was like, "Yeah, that's that's it." Yeah, I mean, so key. There was an attempt to get a really big movie star to play Nathaniel, mm-hmm. which I sort of fought against because I thought, no, because if it's a big movie star, you know. What are you? You're going to see like a big movie star, and yeah, and <laughs> that risks it being stunty too, probably. Yeah, given the role. But I was given pretty much pretty much everybody I um I wanted to cast um uh I I cast, and even though there was there was some concern in the room, there was a some division in the room about um who should play David. There was another actor who was quite good, but I I just felt like it should be Michael and. Mm-hmm. The, the people at HBO felt like it should be the other guy, but what really surprised me was they said, but we're going to trust you. You get to make this decision. And that's just had, I had never had that kind of experience yeah. before. 
I had had an experience when I was casting Oh, Grow Up when there was, uh, you know, um, the top brass at ABC had a question about an actor. And I said, well, here's why I think she's great. And the look that came over uh, the guy's face was like, what do you, you're not questioning me, are you? Really? Wow. Really? And I was just like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess I'm, I should just keep my mouth shut. And did you start having uh, those conversations holding your Oscar after uh, American Beauty? <laughs> I, I did not have the I, I did not have the Oscar at that time. So oh, okay. I Just bring it, it into before the meetings that. and set it on the table. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual-wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Uh, I thought it might be fun. I've never done this before, but I thought it'd be fun if maybe I gave you the actor's uh, name and if you could give me like just the first five or six words that come to your mind. Okay. You for that? Yeah. All right. Let's let's go ahead and start with Peter Krause. Um, okay. Oh, this is tougher than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> it could be a short um, sentence. Um, confident. Mm-hmm. Uh, repressed. I'm. I'm. This is Nate. This is not ne- necessarily Peter Krause, the man. I'm, we're talking about the character, right? Uh, I mean, up up to you. I was thinking more of you know, kind of Peter Krause and, and oh. how he became Nate. But uh, you, you just... okay? Well, then let's do Peter Krause. Confident, okay. funny, really funny. Uh huh. Um, committed. Um. Disciplined. Um. Wounded. Oh, okay. 
Uh, Michael C. Hall. Complex. Um, big heart. Uh, again, wounded. Um, uh, brave. Mm-hmm. Fearless. I think that's another word you might use to describe Francis Conroy because I've heard you say that before. So Francis Conroy. Fearless, um, dear, kind, um, egoless. Egoless. I think I've heard you talk about in some interviews that she was just really ready to do whatever it took. Well, sometimes, sometimes uh, actors will look at the material they've been given to play and they'll go like, well, but I would never do that. Uh-huh. At which point I'm always want to say like, yeah, but the character is not you. Right. You know. Um, but the thing about Franny, I, you could say like Ruth, um, Ruth eats a puppy. Uh-huh. And she she wouldn't come to you and go like what are you what are you talking about are you crazy Ruth eats a puppy she'd be like okay I've never eaten a puppy so I I guess I have some questions <laughs> <laughs> that's great that must be great oh it's so great it's so great I remember the scene in the from the pilot where she's crying at Nathaniel's a grave yeah. and um and she like you know snot was coming out of her nose and it was uh-huh. so so visceral and messy and and um and i said cut and i but i needed to get it from a different angle so i said franny can i i are you up for doing that again and she was like oh yeah of course just right back in it huh just right back in it yeah amazing i, I think we uh we call them ruth freakouts when you know, she would just snap, and it's some of my favorite moments in the whole series. Is whenever Ruth has one of her freakouts, and we would rate them which ones are the best on the Ruth scale. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. those were yeah. always so much fun when she would just finally just lose it. Totally, it was great. Yeah. Uh, all right. How about Lauren Ambrose? Um, innocent, uh, open, uh, charismatic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, brave again, brave. Mm-hmm. What about Rachel Griffiths? Uh, complex, um, powerful, uh, committed, uh, disciplined. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, mercurial. Mm. Yeah, Brenda. I mean, what a character to sink your teeth in. So much. There was just so much there and so much that, you know, it wasn't always pretty, often not pretty. And to really lay yourself out there like that and to and to be um, to risk being a character people would would hate at times and mm-hmm. to go there anyway. It's just uh just amazing to watch. Mm-hmm. Tough stuff. Yeah, I was one of my favorite characters because she's so complicated. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> over the course of the show, she kind of gets control of it. You know. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, 
and you know not just with Nate her relationship with Billy and with her mom uh mm. it was just everything was fraught with complications I think when uh when Justin Thoreau came around as an audience uh, member we were all rooting for that in a way because you know I think that even people that love Nate and Brenda together could acknowledge that they probably weren't the best for each other. <laughs> right. And then when Justin Throw came around, it was kind of like, this is your chance, Brenda. Like, you know, keep on this course. And she just, yeah. she just couldn't. Yeah. Really interesting stuff. Uh, yeah. What about um, James Cromwell? Um, decent. Um kind um uh what's the word i want gravitas mm, mm -hmm. um open open that was tough stuff too because i think once you fall in love with ruth as a viewer you just want some goodness for her Absolutely. and and she finally gets it and then like at times we were joking around. We were like, why does Alan Ball hate the Fishers? Like, <laughs> like it was so terrible to see that slip away. And then I guess it was season three when she, uh, I mean, season three as a whole was a, was a tough experience uh, mm. to get through, especially that season three finale really mm. tested the limits. I think of uh, what an audience member can, can take in some ways. Remind me what the season three finale Season three was. finale was, geez, I mean, I, I might start crying thinking about it. Uh, Lisa's death is confirmed. Uh, right, 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 right. Claire meets her, uh, her, her baby in heaven, who Lisa is taking care of now. Right, and Nate goes to Brenda after the, goes, the fight after, in yeah, the bar. Yeah, he gets his ass kicked in the bar, just the most destructive, self-destructive behavior he's engaging in, dangerous behavior. Yeah. Uh, but there's, uh, that's when Ruth and George uh, decide to get married. Right. And so I'm, I'm that kind of leads me to a question, which is finding the right balance in a show where, you know, admittedly a lot of really tough stuff happens to people that you have made viewers love and then throwing in nuggets of hope here and there. Like, how mm -hmm. did you work on that balance? Uh, Again, it, I, it's not very conscious. It's just I, I just sort of trusted my instincts about what felt right. Um, I had some uh, – the writer's room on Six Feet Under was so great. It was such a great room. It was, such, it was so great to be a part of such a collaborative process with these really um, gifted and smart and interesting people. Um, but there was, uh, there was uh, always um, – People were pitching pretty nihilistic things. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and I found myself being the one who was like, "No, we can't do that. We can't do." You know, uh, there there was even a pitch um, that uh, the last season would there would be a, a nuclear strike and uh. it would take place in like a post-apocalyptic wasteland. And I was like, oh, "No, too much. <laughs> we can't do that." Um, uh yeah, I just sort of trusted my instincts. It's yeah. like, um, and I also tried to keep the show as funny as it could be, right? Um, in to sort of balance that stuff out, uh, because I feel like in life, humor is part of what helps us deal with 
tragedy and mm-hmm. uh, and trauma and all the horrible things that uh, have happened and are happening and will happen. Yeah, I think a lot of that came, a lot of the humor and a lot of the, just the, the break from some of the, the tough stuff happened with the fantasy sequences. And that's really a, a very unique part of that show. When when was that born? Was that sort of in your plans from the beginning? Yeah, I, it was. Um, I think you know there were. I think probably because that was the first major thing I wrote after American Beauty. There were fantasy sequences in American Beauty, right? And um, and I and there were fantasy sequences in the pilot of Six Feet Under. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the fact that Nathaniel was there talking to people. Um, those were definitely fantasy sequences. I never, we never intended that to be like, oh, he's a ghost and he's uh-huh. actually talking. It was just like a, it was a metaphor for conversations that the non-dead characters were having in their head right. with him. Um, there's that great sequence where Nate imagines getting hit by the bus uh-huh. uh, and he goes through the, you know, he dies and goes towards the light and gets sucked through the tunnel and, and to like a weird poker game where his dad's playing poker naked and it's like (laughs) do you mind (laughs) oh there was so much good stuff in the fantasy sequences the uh yeah of course the weirdest one uh david's egg donation with the 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 demon baby puppet (laughs) i love that it was so out there and crazy it was just i know what uh, the the reason it happened that way is because lauren was doing uh a she had she was either doing some time on a movie or she is, was in a play or something, and Lauren was unavailable. And so oh, we okay. that's why we decided, <laughs> like, well, what if we had, like, a weird Claire puppet? Oh, that's and, funny. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> behind-the-scenes nuts and bolts. <laughs> yeah, necessity is the mother of invention. Absolutely. Right. Um, with Richard Jenkins, you know, I think he's such a beloved actor. And given his role on the show as sort of this this – you know, sage that would wander in and out. What was it like when he popped onto set, you know, uh, for his brief periods? Was that a lot of fun when, when he came around as far as the rest of the cast and crew? First of all, he's a total sweetheart. Yeah. He's such a nice man and he's got, and he's just beloved, you know, beloved and with good reason. I was always happy when he was there because I got to hang out with him a little bit. Yeah. Because um, he's one of those people who just, He's doing it for all the right reasons. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? He's not, uh, he, he just, and he was involved with a theater company back in, uh, I don't know if it's Delaware or Maryland, um, uh, but uh, he's just such a dear, kind, incredibly talented uh, person. So I loved, I loved it whenever he would show up. It was yeah. a great cast. I mean, it was really a great cast, and and everybody really. I think at the time we knew, on some level, how special the experience that we were being allowed to have uh-huh. was. Um, but nobody ever tra- paid too much, articulated that too much because I think it's nobody wanted to jinx it. But I think you know, for five years, you know, to really enjoy going to work and to. And to never really have an experience of like, oh, yeah. I got to do this again, um, is pretty rare. Yeah, y'all shot over at uh, Gower Studios, right? We did. 
Yeah, I was when I was living in LA at the time, I worked as a PA and every once in a while I would have some sort of run over to Gower to do something. And I, every time I was always on pins and needles, I was like, am I going to get a peek? Am I going to see Keith in the hallway <laughs> or something? I was always so excited when I got to go over there. <laughs> yeah. Um, Richard Jenkins, you know, his role to come sort of in and out of the show, it was so key and I think so brilliant uh, and vital to be able to interact with his family again. And he he always served such a great purpose for each one of them, I feel like, when they needed him. Um, but the one that really stands out was, oh, goodness, when I still think about this scene, it just it just gives me chills. Uh, after David's abduction and sort of suffering through PTSD, when mm -hmm. the, the scene with him at the window, when he's talking about how he should be grateful and that he can do anything, he's still alive, and he says, what if, you know, it can't be that simple, and he said, what if it is? Right. And it just crystallizes in one sentence, and that was one of those scenes that really made me, and I think a lot of people sort of take stock of their life and like, you know, we can get down and we can get depressed, but it's like, but we're here. <laughs> yeah. And and you're not guaranteed to be here. So like, you know, get, get busy living. Yeah, exactly. Such good stuff. I think we all, yeah, I remember viewers, that scene. Oh man. It was just unbelievable. Um, yeah. As viewers, we always like to think that when when he pops on set, that everyone's like, "Dad's here." <laughs> <laughs> it kind of was like that, actually. Oh, really? I think all the all the actors loved him and looked up to him so much that when he was there, it was it, 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 especially if they got to have a scene with him. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, I'd love to talk about David and Keith a little bit. Uh, you know, Schitt's Creek gets so much attention and uh, adulation for, um, I guess, quote unquote, normalizing a, a gay couple on screen. And they deservedly so. They did a really great job. But my wife, Emily, and I are constantly just screaming like, Alan Ball did this 20 years ago. <laughs> like David and Keith were the, the proto gay couple mm -hmm. as far as just and it's not even normalizing like uh, their day to day relationship, you know, of course, was just played straight and played normal, but also normalizing the gay lifestyle and mm -hmm. the sometimes anonymous sex that David might have or that Keith mm -hmm. might have or bringing Sarge in every now and then. And there was just no judgment at all. I think it was really important. I'd love to know a little bit about what that meant to you. I think, you know, there was always a, a, a big push in the writer's room to break them up. And we did break them up in the first season. And uh -huh. but once they got back together, um, people would say like, oh, but David could go on like really embarrassing dates. And I was like, that's... Yeah, there's that, only so that, much you can get out of that. And that also feels like a sitcom thing to me. Right. You know, it felt like, well, that's what they're doing on Will and Grace and that's perfect. That's uh -huh. perfect for that show, but I don't want to see David go on embarrassing dates. Yeah. I would much rather see David and Keith try to maneuver their sometimes fundamental differences and stay in a relationship mm -hmm. because that's what I haven't seen. Right. You know what I mean? And, um, so that's, that's, I, I, I remember actually one of the notes we got, um, from, uh, Chris Albrecht after the first season was try to make Nate and Brenda as interesting as David and Keith. Oh, really? or maybe maybe yeah. it was more in terms of like try to make their sex life as interesting uh -huh. as David and Keith's. 
um, yeah, but I, I always wanted to, to, for it to be like, this is what it's like, you know, when two men get married. I mean, right. it, 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 it wasn't marriage at the time, but uh-huh. it was. You know, it was a it was a commitment that they yeah. made to each other, and the fact that they were both religious and they went to church and everything. Yeah, yeah that was really interesting. Yeah, I uh, I I just wanted it to be, uh, and I didn't want it to be too sensational. And and of course, you know, them being gay is going to be a part of of what their story and, and and their characters are all about, but I didn't uh-huh. want it to be the defining right. Thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it wasn't. Um, yeah, it wasn't. And it's a testament to both of them. Um, neither one of them are gay in real life, but uh, they also, you know, I said, I, I told you that, you know, there were only two African-American men who would read for Keith, but also there were a lot of, of uh, Caucasian guys who turned down the chance to read for David. There's a lot of like, oh, I've already played gay, and I don't, I don't uh-huh. want people to think that I'm, you know, the gay guy and whatever. Yeah. And I would hear that, and I would be like, okay, well, you're an actor. I'll never hire. For right. Anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not brave or two words that come to mind. <laughs> exactly. Um, I mean, I get it. I know actors are forced to sort of think of themselves as commodities and yeah. and manage their career based on that, but. Uh, it's so different now. Like yeah. every show I watch on Netflix, and I watch a lot of um, international shows, mm-hmm. there's always a gay character. Yeah. Always. And they always have a sex life that you see, which it didn't used to be that way. Well, um, I think thanks to you, you know, I think well, you I don't think that it's, door open. I don't think it's just thanks to me, but it's... Um, uh, you had a lot to do with that. Well, thank you. Um and it, it is a big deal, you know, it's, um, and, and I know we talk a lot about representation now and that just wasn't a really part of the conversation back then, I feel like. Right. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast, How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash 
You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So you also had the benefit on this show of casting your weekly guest stars because more so than many shows or maybe even any show that I can think of, the guest stars had a really big, uh, they were a really big part of, of the, the run of the show with the initial opening death sequence. And then mm-hmm. more times than not, that would really play a kind of vital role in that episode there's that storyline. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just, you know, come in here and do this guest thing, like some really, really juicy roles for little known actors. And some of them went on to be big stars, but uh, Emily and I were having conversations about how many people that are just out of the business today that have this conversation at a dinner party. Well, I used to act, what did you do? Well, the biggest thing I probably ever did was a six feet under guest role. And how many, <laughs> how many people have that badge of honor that mm. didn't go on to be big stars, but right. got to play a really, really great part even so because they were just such meaty guest star roles. Right. And what was the casting like that uh, with that week to week? How, how tough was that? Or how involved in that were you at that point? Well, I had a, I mean, we had amazing casting directors in uh, Libby Goldstein and Junie Larry Johnston. Um, Emmy went they would, for this? Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And for a lot of other things as well. Um, and they would just bring in really good people. And it was uh, it was always occasionally I would be like we didn't we didn't see anybody that really feels right can we mm-hmm. keep looking but for the most part they just you know they know the they know the acting community and they know which people are right for things and they would just it was it was really great because I casting was one of my favorite aspects of being in production because I love actors and right. I, I love. As a writer, also a lot of times when you when you watch casting, people will do it differently than you thought it should be done when mm-hmm. you wrote it, but it's better. So you're you're like, oh, okay, I see that. And sometimes I would adjust the script because of things like that. Is it pretty gratifying to kind of break an actor like a like a Ben Foster, let's say, and to see what kind of work that he went on to do? Oh yeah, there were a lot of actors that. Um, like Chris Messina too. Yeah. Um, I just, it was, it, it was great to sort of see them kind of become, you know, I think, I think because of their exposure on six feet under, maybe they got a little more opportunities um, than, I don't know. I hope so. <clears throat> oh, of course. I think, I think Ben Foster, especially as Russell, uh, I mean, such an, such a fun character. I mean, kind of annoying in some ways, but you also rooted for him. And he was, you know, he was kind of a, uh, a snobby art guy for a little while, but you also wanted him to, to be better. And uh, for some reason he, Russell was always just a character that kind of got in my own head, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ben Foster did just such a great job with him. Such a good meaty role at a young age. 
Yeah, he was. He's really good. I get annoyed when I look at the Emmy awards list, and you guys were nominated for I think fifty plus Emmys, but the the lack of Emmy awards for the actors is just pisses me off. Still, when I see, I and mean, I know awards are awards, but how does Peter Krause not get a Emmy award for season three? It's just, it's unthinkable to me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do feel like everybody did awards worthy work. Everybody, um, but there's only so many people who can win awards. There's I always know. people, you know. I know. It's gratifying. I, I think Francis Conroy won a, a Golden Globe. Um, yeah, and. Didn't somebody else win something? I feel oh, like somebody Rachel won it. Rachel won a Golden Globe, uh-huh. and there was a somebody won a SAG Award. I, I want to say it's it's Franny as well. And you won one for directing, right? I won an Emmy for directing. Yes. Yeah. I guess you can't win them all, but when I see uh, the cast, I, I just feel like each of them should have gotten one at some point. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Um, I sh- I think they should be like participant awards. I think everybody should get the award. Yeah, I mean, we've talked on, the, on the show about having uh, having an ensemble cast award. I think is is kind of overdue for something like that. Oh, we did win an ensemble award for SAG. Oh, okay. So they do that. SAG they have a ensemble, and we did win that one year. Oh, that's cool. Um, aesthetically, um, just you know, the look of the show. Uh, was very unique in that I feel like there were a couple of things that y'all did early on that really became signature aesthetic parts of the show, like the the deep framing with uh, you know the multiple characters in focus, you know, mm-hmm. kind of stacked on one another. How how did those decisions come about? Well, that was probably um, Alan Queso, our our director of photography. Um, I remember when we were we were shot listing for the pilot and, and um, there were some shots of Ruth in the kitchen after she threw the pot roast, after she found out that uh, (laughs) Nathaniel had been killed. Yeah. And those were his choices. I mean, he would, he would line them up and show them to me. And I, I I said, Oh yeah, that's great. Let's do that. And we, you know, we talked, my, my approach to shot listing is okay. This scene is about this character feeling paranoid. Mm -hmm. So how do we, tell that visually and then i'd totally depend on the dp because i didn't go to film school i don't know what lenses are what and do what so i i can tell you emotionally what needs to be happening in this scene Mm -hmm. so i i I think a lot of the credit for the look of the show would go to alan queso yeah i mean we i know plenty of people had done that deep focus shot but we we still call that the six feet under shot Mm. when we see that because it just became so signature to the show i think Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's cool because not I don't feel like every show has a signature look uh, these days. Yeah, I agree. And you could always tell the Six Feet Under episode just, you know, by looking at it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, let's talk a little bit about the opening death sequences. You know, was that a, an idea from the very beginning to use that as, as a sort of framing device? Um, It wasn't. <laughs> I mean, when I wrote the pilot, I basically just tried to open as many doors as I possibly could. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Nathaniel getting hit by the bus is such a great, great way to open the show. Yeah. Um, I think once the show got picked up and and 
went into production, I immediately was like, okay, well, what are we going to do? Well, we let's just kill somebody at the beginning of every episode. Mm-hmm. And because it just made it just made perfect sense because in a way it's kind of like a franchise show. It's kind of like a cop show or uh-huh. a or a hospital show with the case of the month or the disease mm-hmm. uh, case case of the week or disease of the week. We just had the death of the week. And um I I think a lot of things a lot of decisions were made once we went from pilot to series, one of which was well, we can't we got to get rid of those commercials for the for the funeral product, products that were in the pilot because right. you're going to run out of products really quickly. Yeah. Um so, uh it it just it just seemed to organically evolve into that. Yeah, I mean, it was fun for the viewers because there's a little bit of a you know, Every every week you sit down, and back then before you could binge stuff, which I really enjoyed, sort of that appointment television thing, you mm-hmm. would sit there and you'd be like, all right, you know, what's going to happen this week? So there's a little bit of anticipation that immediately you have going into watching a Six Feet Under episode and then trying to figure out who is it going to be and then the fun misdirection that you guys were able to do. Um, mm-hmm. But it but it wasn't just a a stunt. It, you know, it it's so often really factored in to the episode and not just we need to give them something to do at the funeral home this week. It was, they played vital roles sometimes in, in the story of the other, of the main cast. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I have a brother and a sister. I'm the youngest of three. I have an older brother and an older sister. So this show, the, the, the sibling uh, aspect of it always really hit home. And uh, some of my favorite scenes are, and there weren't a ton of them when it was just, the three of them yeah. together uh, were always very special scenes to me. And uh, I wondered just sort of what your life was like. Did you have siblings? Did that inform anything in the show? Um, yeah, yes and no. Um, I had three siblings. I have two siblings, uh, two brothers, uh, mm-hmm. 15 and 19 years older than me. So we didn't really, we weren't really children together at the same Uh time. So we don't have that sibling connection. And then my sister was eight years older than me, but she was killed in a car accident when I was 13 years old. Mm. So I had the sibling thing with her as a child, but then once, once she was gone, I didn't really have siblings the way that the Fisher siblings are with Mm -hmm. each other. Um, so in a lot of ways, I think a lot of what that stuff was, was for me was maybe, uh, wish fulfillment. Like if I had had siblings closer to me in age, maybe Uh this is the relationship I would have had with them or this kind of relationship. Yeah. Um, but then again, it's also, you have to remember, it's not all coming from me. It's Mm -hmm. there were, again, there were, I had a room full of really good writers and a lot of, a lot of stuff would, uh, would come from them, you know? In fact, as much stuff came from them as came from me. It was always just so real because I feel like that's how life works when you, especially with siblings, in that at various times they're each taking care of one another in different ways. Right. Uh, and it's not something that you get together on and two siblings go, okay, you know, Claire's going through some trouble. So one right. of us needs to really be there for her. It just always felt so organic and real, and it just felt like a real family. Yeah, it did. It did. 
especially Claire and Ruth, you know, their relationship was so complicated and uh, you just, you wanted Ruth to be satisfied with that relationship and with all the relationships with her kids. And she so often wasn't, and it was just always so tough to see. I remember that, that uh, moment where Claire and her friend Parker were on mushrooms and they made uh-huh. those hilarious clown pants. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then Ruth wore them and, <laughs> and, and it, it, it was so complicated. Claire's response was like, Oh, I'm glad she's wearing them, but I'm embarrassed that I made them for her. And yeah. Oh my God, she's so dorky. And my <laughs> mom, I love her so much, but Oh, she embarrasses me. And <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. It was so good. Yeah. Um, when did you, the the idea of David uh, being abducted? Where did that come from? That was such a brutal moment of the show, and really kind of dominated his storyline for a while after. Uh, arguably through through the end of the series, you know, he's still suffering from PTSD. Where where did that hatch? Well, that was in season four, and I felt like something really needed to shake David up. Uh-huh. Um, and when I was a kid, when I was a child, my oldest brother was dating a woman who was abducted and um, and a guy with a gun forced her into his car and drove drove the car out into a field. And then when he got out of the car uh, and was going to come around and open her door and God only knows what he had planned, yeah, um, she locked all the doors and just started blowing the horn. Uh-huh. And he and he ran off. So nothing nothing terrible happened to her, but still, it's something that happened to somebody I knew. So I think when I when we were breaking um, season four, when the writers had reconvened and we were just breaking season four, I pitched that because I I wanted something really terrible uh, and mm-hmm. and inexplicable and and insane to happen to David because I felt like he needed he needed something to shake him out of his his sort of uptightness and his sort of feeling mm-hmm. sorry for himself and and his his whole sort of approach you know he had been the good little boy his entire life yeah. good little boy with a with a secret life um and I just wanted I, I just felt like we need to do something that will shock him. Uh, the intent was never to shock the audience, but to have some, to, something to shock David into right. a new state. So that's kind of where that came from. Oh, interesting. I um, The show also features a, a trio of women uh, that were some of my favorite characters on the show. Uh, and I always feel like you've really written strong women well. Uh, and that's with uh, Kathy Bates, Patricia Clarkson, and Joanna Cassidy. Who yeah. I, I just I can't help but laugh uh, when I think of, of Brenda's mom, um, <laughs> yes. just hysterical on the show, outrageous yes. and and just wrong in every way, but just such a funny funny character. Yes, absolutely. How was it working with them? I know Kathy Bates ended up directing some too, right? Yes, um, it was great. I mean. It was great. They all three of them were amazing um, actors and fun to be around. And they really, you know, they really just took the material and went with it. And uh, and it was it was really, really good. Yeah, I feel like that's when Ruth was most herself too. 
her happiest moments were when she was in Laurel Canyon at at her sister's house and hanging out with with the that great gang of kind of crazy ladies. Yeah. Uh, even though that wasn't her scene at all, which I always thought was really interesting. It was a much more Claire scene. Yeah. Yet Ruth found her happiness there among these kind of, you know, kooky artists. Yeah, absolutely. I remember the uh, episode where Kathy Bates and her are shopping, and Kathy Bates is just like, we're invisible. We can steal shit, and nobody right. will even notice. <laughs> that was so great. Because women our age, you know, yeah. are invisible. It's true. But you also, I think, had the courage to portray a, a woman of a certain age as a sexual creature. And that's something that you, I don't think you still see a lot of, uh, is to show Ruth, like, you know, having sex and dating various men. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, uh, in 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 TV world, like after you know, women after fifty are just like you know, it's it's uh, it's not happening anymore, and yeah. that has nothing to do with real life. Yeah, um, let's talk a little bit about the end in season five. Um, going into season five, I assume that you knew that that was going to be the end of the show. Yes. Uh, how much how much consternation is there when sort of mapping out a final season like that i mean we knew it was going to be the last episode so for the first time we really had to figure out what the last moment was going to be mm-hmm. and I, I i i can't remember which person pitched it it wasn't me but the idea to uh for everyone to die. Originally, it was pitched in a way of like, we should just kill everybody. And I was like, no, that's too nihilistic, whatever. But then once we did some more talking about it, and I realized we could just be with each character at their moment, when mm-hmm. they're, at the moment when their life ended, um, it was like, well, of course. I mean, how else can you end this show? That's the perfect, there's no other way. There's no, yeah. we, there's, it's not even worth considering anything else because that's so perfect. And then, you know, uh, figuring out, you know, Nate dying, because we had laid the groundwork for him with his, the issues with his arteriovenous malformation yeah. or whatever that it's called. I always want to say ATM, but it's mm-hmm. AVM. Um, so it was just working backwards from that point. How do we get there? What do we do to get there? And, um, and it was pretty much like any other season, except that you knew that final episode was the last one. And it was really yeah. emotional. I mean, I think, you know, everybody, when everybody was crying, when Nate was dead and they were burying him, and uh, that was all, people were crying, people were emotional because it was... You could tell. <laughs> it was real. It was, a, it, was, it was real. It was very real. And we were all, you know, something that we all loved very much and it was very much a part of who we thought of ourselves as. That was coming to an end. And that's... Um, so there was a whole grief thing going on yeah. as we ended the show. Yeah, I think it was really smart to um, have Nate die two episodes before the end rather yeah. than in the end because those last two episodes were tough. Uh, I mean, the whole last season was tough, but um, those last two episodes were tough, but I think really vital to see everyone trying to put the pieces together, floundering, you know, Claire being drunk at work, and it was just such a mess, but it's like... When I mentioned earlier, my wife and I saying, like, does Alan Ball hate the Fishers? I think at age <laughs> at age 50, we were both like, no, that's just kind of life. Yeah. You know, this, uh, this stuff is real. And you you get a little few years behind you. 
and you see this stuff all around you happening and it's like no that's that's kind of realistic it's yeah. not sadistic it's real life yeah um it is life life comes at you yeah are people still mad at you because of uh keith and the security uh truck <laughs> um people were mad murdered. at me yeah i just wondered if people were like how could you have keith murdered at the end <laughs> <laughs> um i mean i i think people are people are still mad at me about david and the being abducted david and the dog oh really uh yeah there a lot of people really were like very upset by that huh um i you know but people die Right. And and people die and some people die because they're killed and other people die because they got a disease and uh some people die of just old age and that's yeah. That's just the way it happened. That's yeah, the way I think it, it was you know. it was pretty cool to see Claire live to what was it, hundred and hundred hundred yeah. something. Yeah. It was really special. Um I imagine it's pretty gratifying too. I mean, to be known as as having the, maybe the greatest series finale of all time because it's such a hard thing to do. Uh, it must be pretty gratifying to to get those kind of kudos. Yeah, it's very nice to hear that. You know, because um, uh, you you know you want something to end well. Yeah. Uh, and and so many people have said that you know that it, it was it was such a strong ending that. That that's uh, it's definitely very gratifying. Yeah, Amazing. a lot of other shows, a lot of other great shows have not been quite so lucky. Yeah, uh, I mean, most there you can count on a couple of hands, like the great, great series finales, and and Six Feet Under is always there at the top. I think. Uh, all right, if you have a few more minutes, I'd love to finish with a few listener questions. This is such a beloved show that uh, I'm sure you've had people for the past twenty years stopping you on the street and telling you very personal stories. It's just one of those shows, I think, that means a lot to people emotionally and personally. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when I, I put this out on our Facebook page to our to the movie crush, uh, the movie crushers, as we call them, and I have a few more questions from them. Uh, Sarah Law says, what character were you closest to emotionally? Claire. Claire. Mm-hmm. The artist is that why or i think so yeah uh, and also being the youngest and and um growing up in a <laughs> weird environment surrounded by death yeah <laughs> um let me see here kelly conklin says my daughter's middle name is claire named after claire fisher uh nate was extremely codependent always seeking out women for validation right up to the end if he would have survived do you think he would have changed was that last relationship uh, the one that could have saved him? Interesting. I I don't know that he would have changed. It would have required some professional interve intervention and yeah. a lot of uh, a lot of hard work on his part. Um, I I just don't think he would have changed. I just don't. I mean, you could look at that and say, "Oh, that's tragic," or you could look at it and say, "Well, that, that's who he was." That's that's just who he was. I think I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, I love Nate. I mean, what a what a complex character. I, think. I love Nate too, but he was yeah. he, he was a he was not an old soul. Yeah, and he he uh, he 
he there's a lot of growth that could have happened with him that didn't and that was part of the point i think i think that nails it he was he was he wanted to be the 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 right man i think but that's not always enough right exactly you know? uh debbie frangadakis says uh six feet under challenge the comfort level of viewers was there ever a uh a scene a death scene or otherwise that made you uncomfortable and didn't use it and it didn't make the show i guess the nuclear bomb thing was one was there, was <laughs> yeah. there anything was there anything else there was a lot of concern after nate died there was a moment where brenda was very short-tempered with maya oh and, interesting um and there was a lot of concern from uh, HBO. Mm -hmm. uh, they were like, you know, she's too mean. She's she's a bad mother, and and I just felt like, no, she's not. Her husband just died, and she yeah. found out he was having an affair with this other woman. And uh, you know, just because she's a mother doesn't mean she's a perfect mother. Well, and sometimes um, you are a bad mother and a bad father. It's just that's absolutely life yeah, it's absolutely. So. Um, there was a lot of, but they didn't force me to do it, so I did not change it. I kept it in. Yeah, that's the other stuff that we have a almost six year old daughter now, so the Maya stuff now just wrecked us. And when we were thirty, it was you know we thought Maya was cute, but there wasn't until you have the kids. There's <laughs> you can't really right. have that emotional tie there. Right. Uh, that, was, that stuff was very very tough for us to watch. Um, Megan Carroll says. Was Nate's death always in the cards from the very beginning, or did it come around in later seasons? Uh, it was not in the cards from the very beginning. When I wrote the pilot, I didn't think this guy's going to die at the end of the show. Mm -hmm. um, it, sort of, it sort of organically evolved, to use yeah. that term again, um, especially once, once he developed a potentially life-threatening illness. Then it, it was just something that was always there. And eventually... I mean, he had to die. Yeah. That was his journey. His journey was basically running away from death, coming home, facing death, and then eventually succumbing to death. Yeah, I think as a viewer, once the uh, brain thing was revealed, you kind of knew. It was like, well, that's just lingering out there, and, and it, it's not gone away. <laughs> it'll, you know, it'll come back at some point. So I think we kind of knew it was coming. And, and right. that, to me, was part of the... Part of the the interest of the show, in I don't want to say fun of the show, but um, like you almost like with a family member, you know, you only have so much time with. Yeah, you know, to sort of drink in those moments with these characters that you love. Yeah. Well, Alan, this was great. Uh, I won't keep you here for three more hours and talk about every aspect of the show. Uh, that I want no, to talk this was about, fantastic. But, this was really fun. To this sort is of, a lot uh, of fun. It's such a special yeah, show to so many people. Um, it's just one of those shows, you know, it's just not your average show that people sort of watched and loved. I mean, it's a show that is beloved and still is very much beloved. And I think one that people uh, really go back and revisit and rewatch like we did. We've heard from a lot of people that have the same experience. So thank you for that. Um, we are also very big True Blood fans, by the way, but we can't get into that right now. <laughs> we love True Blood. That was such a fun show. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. Of course. You too. Movie Crush is produced and written by Charles Bryant and Noel Brown. Edited and engineered by Seth Nicholas Johnson and scored by Noel Brown here in our home studio at Ponce Market, Atlanta, Georgia for iHeartRadio. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.